really good to be with you all again. I have missed many of you 930ers. Those are you that formerly attended the 930 service and have made the transition to the 9 o'clock service. I say well done. My family could not make that transition. So um, we were chronically late to church with the switch to the 9, so now we've switched to the 1045, which we love. But what this has meant is that when you're getting up at 6 in the morning from little kids is that you feel like you have all day. And so what we'll do is, you know, we'll have a big breakfast. We'll slowly drink our coffee. My husband will go bird watching. And then we'll be scrambling to get to the 1045. So we're still, you know, late. But we do our best. Um, and as you know, we've been going through the book of Luke. I think it's been, oh, Jerry left. I was going to say my joke. It's been about two years. Um, but he's gone, so he'll have to hear that the next service. Um, but really not that long, but it's been good, and today we're going to wrap up chapter 6. We're going to wrap up the Sermon on the Plain. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're in Luke 6, verse 43 to 49. It says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. That one is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood arose, the river burst against that house but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell and great was the ruin of that house. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God, let us pray. Jesus, thank you for these words. To those 2,000 years ago that feel uh, so clearly applicable to us today. Help us to see this scripture with fresh eyes and Holy Spirit. Breathe new life into it. Make its application clear to us. Guide my words and the meditations of all of our hearts and minds this morning. In your powerful name I pray, amen. Well, Jerry reminded us last week that these passages are giving instructions on how to live, and they're intending to wake us up, but they must first be viewed in the context of our relationship with God. And today, this passage feels no different to me. It's waking us up. It's inviting us to reflect and evaluate the condition of our heart. Bible scholars have described these final verses um, in the Sermon of the Plain as a summation of the, and a focus on integrity or character. You see, integrity is the opposite of hypocrisy. And last week, Jerry talked about hypocrisy. It's, hypocrisy is the idea that what one is presenting on the outside is not at all what's on the inside. Integrity is the consistency of character. It's when the inner condition of our hearts reflect um, and is being reflected on the outside. And this imagery that we looked at today um, in these verses is really accessible to us. 
a tree and its fruit is easy to understand. It's easy to envision. We've, most of us, probably all of us, have seen a house being built. And I would say if you've purchased a home, you know that you do not want a problem with your foundation, right? I would rather have leaky pipes than a problem with my foundation. And we can talk about that in the gathering space someday because I've had a lot of leaky pipes. Um, and so um, these, these metaphors that Jesus is using today, they're drawing upon common sense. There's a logic to them. And Jesus' way of teaching was different than the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. He told vivid stories of ordinary life to help us understand some very deep spiritual truths. In his first metaphor of a tree and a fruit, he says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. In case you didn't know, a bramble bush is just a tangled, prickly shrub. Um, so intuitively, we know it's true. You know a tree by its fruit. Steve, my husband, loves trees. And even more so in the last few years. And you know, I like, I like trees too. I like to be outside and I like to hike. Um, but he's real big on tree identification. And so we moved into this house, and we had this tree that he, uh, it was a mystery tree. He couldn't, he didn't, under, he didn't know the leaves, he wasn't familiar with the bark, and on the tree there were long brown pods. Does anybody know what that tree would be? A Kentucky coffee tree, yes. Well, we didn't know, so we spent lots of conversations talking about this mystery tree. And, um, you know, you know a tree by its fruit. And then he told me that he wanted to plant a sweet gum tree in our front yard. Well, I was on board because um, apparently their leaves are beautiful in the fall. So, so go ahead. And after he planted it, or maybe it was when we were having the discussion about whether or not the tree should, be, should share the property line with our neighbors, he brought up the fact that, well, this tree drops, drops those spiky, round seeds. <laughs> so we're going to plant that in our front yard? Okay. Um, so we probably shouldn't plant it next to our neighbors, right? Um, so, and we are, I guess, trying to reinforce to our kids that you, you should wear shoes when you walk outside. <laughs> and they're going to have to now, definitely after this year. So Eugene Peterson puts this, um, verses 43 through 45 in this, in this way in the message. I think it's helpful. He says, you don't get wormy apples off a healthy tree, nor good apples off a diseased tree. The health of the apple tells the health of the tree. You must begin with your own life-giving lives. It's who you are, not what you say and do that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. So what is Jesus getting at with this familiar, understandable metaphor? You follow the logic. People must show good fruit in order to be known as good trees. One commentator suggests that this metaphor is a prompt for self-reflection, and, and I agree with that. She says Jesus is challenging the disciples. If you think you're a good person, then what are you doing to show that that assessment is the correct one? Have you a log in your eye or a stumbling block by your feet, or can you see for yourself if your heart is producing good works? When Jerry first gave me these verses, I really struggled um, after reading them initially. I just perceived this heightened sense of doing, specific, 
specifically doing good works. And actually that verb, uh, doing and doing good, is used 12 times at least in the Sermon on the Plain. And, and to be clear, there is no way getting around this. Jesus is taking seriously the practical demands of what it means to follow him. So with this emphasis on behavior, it might be tempting to draw the conclusion that Jesus is primarily concerned with our actions, with what we do. But you see, there's more to the story than just a concern with our good works. For one, our actions, no matter how good they may seem on the outside, may be motivated by a desire to self-promote, right? Our good actions... um, might be me trying to build up my ego. So you, you say to me, wow, look at all those wonderful things that she is doing. Look at all those good works. Maybe my actions are a way of manipulating somebody. So even my good actions can have a purpose to serve myself. The good action, the true good action that Jesus is talking about is one that originates deep in self within our hearts. We know this because Jesus doesn't stop after comparing the good and the bad fruit. He continues by contrasting two types of people whose hearts are revealed in their actions. In 45, he says, the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. This idea of, um, this idea of producing good It's a natural occurrence. It is an overflow of what is being stored in the heart of a good person. From the treasure of our heart comes action, behavior, and speech. And so we see in 45, we have our attention drawn to the words of our mouth. It says, for out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And you know, this isn't just our words and our language. Um, This is addressing how and what we're communicating in relationship, what we're communicating with one another. Remember, the message version says it like this, your true being brims over into true words and deeds. And we know this. I'll come downstairs, and Steve will take one look at me, and will ask, what's wrong? And if I'm mad, and my response will be, I'm not mad. You know, and he said, you know, it's like, really? Because I can hear you huffing and puffing upstairs, cleaning up the toys, and I heard you stomping down the stairs, and you do not look happy. You know, there's no, unless we try really hard, which you can do, um, there's no hiding the condition of your heart with your words. Reflecting on our speech can be a helpful tool to bring awareness of the condition of our heart. For example, anger, bitterness, jealousy, these emotions are certainly emotions that we think of, right, when we communicate, even when we're trying to manage what we say. So if we're seeing this metaphor as a prompt, Jesus is asking, do you understand your own heart? Do you know what your heart is like? He's bringing attention to our words as a type of litmus test to expose the condition of our hearts. This metaphor is about integrity. It's a call to consistency and character. What one is on the inside is reflected on the outside, whether you want it to or not. A walnut tree cannot drop cherries. 
The health of an apple tells the health of the tree. Our speech, what we communicate to others, tells of the condition of our hearts. You see, Jesus does not struggle with naming trees. This might be a stretch, but Jesus is the master arborist. He knows what kind of tree you are. What he's asking is, do you know? He continues in verse 46, and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? So far in Luke, only two people have referred to Jesus as Lord. Peter and the man with leprosy in chapter 5. We have no indication that either of them are present in this part of the narrative, so we can safely assume that Jesus is speaking to the multitude, to the people, to the great, uh, gr the great crowd that's coming to listen to him preach. We can anticipate, uh, we know that he's, he's anticipating that people are going to say, Lord, Lord, and they're not going to do what he tells them to do. He's anticipating that people will give affirmation of his lordship, but perhaps only in name. So what does it mean to call Jesus Lord, Lord? This term Lord is a term of great respect. It's been translated as master, supreme in authority. Anyone using it is designating Jesus as to the person to whom they owe allegiance and loyalty. Secondly, the repetition of, the na of a name in the Bible signifies intimacy. The repetition of Lord, Lord is a way of expressing emotion. Remember in Genesis 22 when Abraham had placed his son Isaac on the altar in a time of great grief for him, an angel of the Lord appeared and says, Abraham, Abraham. Just a couple of weeks ago, our children's ministry taught about Moses and the burning bush. And when Moses saw that the bush was on fire, but the leaves weren't burning, he went over and looked at it, and God spoke to him from the bush. And what did he say? He said, Moses, Moses. In 2 Samuel, David was grieving the loss of his son, and he wept, and he cried out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. And later in Luke, we'll see Martha was upset with Mary, and Jesus responded, I see you, Martha, Martha. And in Acts, when Saul is on the road to Damascus, and he hears the voice of Jesus cry out to him, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, naming Jesus as Lord, Lord is saying, Jesus, I owe you my allegiance. My loyalty is to you. I have a deep, a personal affection for you. I am declaring you my Lord. There is an intimacy and a richness in this declaration. And Jesus says, so why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to? He's saying, how can you speak of such an intimate relationship with me and claim allegiance to me, but not grant it? How can we claim one thing with our speech and yet do another? This is a piercing question. He goes on and he summarizes all that's really been preached in the Sermon on the Plain by comparing these two people in such a familiar uh, parable to us. He says, I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, who hears my words and acts on them. 
That person is like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid a foundation on rock. When the flood arose, the river burst against that house, but could not shake it because it had been well built. But the person who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the river burst against it, immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. In Palestine, many of the rivers would dry up altogether. Um, sometimes they would leave, or they would leave, not sometimes. When they would dry up, they would leave these wide, empty riverbeds. And sometimes these riverbeds would remain empty for years until it would rain. And so after it finally did rain, these empty riverbeds became a raging river. They were basically what we would think of as a flash flood. So you might be wondering, well, why would somebody build a house in the middle of a riverbed? Well, it, if it's raining really infrequently and there's a large stretch of land, it would be much cheaper and easier just to go ahead and build your house there. You can have a nicer house. So this builder who built his home without a foundation is being contrasted with the first builder who searched for rock. It was much more difficult to build where he chose to build and the labor was much harder to cut in a foundation. But when the rains came and the river burst against that house, the house stood strong and secure. Nothing could shake it, it was built to last. So we have two people here. We have the person who hears and acts and we have the person who hears and does not act. There are consequences of acting and there are consequences of not acting as shown in this parable. Both builders experienced the same life conditions. A raging torrent came and endangered both of their homes. Only the person who heard and acted had a house standing after the flood. Well, to me, this certainly feels like a wake-up call. I've seen um, back in the 90s when the, when the Mississippi River flooded, I don't know if you remember those great floods, I was driving over to Kansas City at that time and I was a little kid and I have such vivid memories of houses washed away by the flood. And this is the imagery that's coming to mind. It, it is a wake-up call. You see, this concluding parable is tying this back to uh, Luke 6.18, which says a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people had come from all over to hear him. So the crucial question is, not, is will they come and hear but are they going to act? To hear Jesus and act is not only doing the behaviors that Jesus has been preaching on. Loving enemies, not judging others, you know, these good fruits. And yes, like I said, the text is clear. Doing what Jesus tells us to do, of course, this is a part of the teaching. But like I mentioned earlier, just doing the good works can have many, many different motivations. It can be of service just to ourselves. The hearing and acting that would naturally follow a confession of Lord, Lord, is an obedience that stems from the heart. It's more than doing the good actions. It's a surrender of one's will. It's a willingness to say, not my will, God, but your will be done. If you are saying, Lord, Lord, do you want Jesus or just want all that Jesus offers? 
I'm talking about the very things that attracted the crowd, the multitude of people who were coming to hear what Jesus had to say. They wanted, they were curious, what is this unconditional love? What is this peace that I'm hearing about? This life meaning and this purpose. But maybe you also want the freedom to choose when to tell the truth, when to forgive, who to love. Or maybe the idea of surrendering your will or my will in total, all of my wants and desires is terrifying. So I'll surrender most things, but the things I cherish so deeply, I can't. I can't give those to the Lord. People say I'll feel better. I just feel better when I go to church and I pray. So I'll continue to go. I'll continue to come and to hear but I want to remain in control of the big decisions in my life. Asking how can I have all the things of Jesus without all of Jesus? How can I be happy and still keep control of my life? But you see this crying out of Lord, Lord. It's the surrendering of your life to Jesus which is also surrendering control of the outcomes. And you know, even when we feel like we've surrendered our will, human nature has a tendency to constantly move towards self-reliance. Give me a list of things and I'm going to do them better. I'll work on it. I'm going to try really hard. We bristle against this idea of surrender and performing feels safer because it makes us believe and feel like we're in control. We want to do things our own way. This is human nature, and this is nothing new. In 1 Samuel 15, after the battle with the Amalekites, God told Saul he wanted him to destroy all the livestock. This didn't make much sense to Saul, so he kept the best livestock. He kept the best cattle, and he kept the best sheep. Then Samuel comes to confront Saul, and Saul greets Samuel, and he says, the Lord bless you. I have carried out all the Lord's instructions. This wonderful, you know, celebratory greeting. And Samuel says, do you guys remember this? What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What then is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, well, we spared the best sheep and cattle to be used in a sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel responded, enough. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying him? To obey is better than sacrifice. You see, he was saying, Saul, you got it wrong. God didn't want the sheep. He wanted you. By keeping the sheep, you kept yourself. By doing it your way, you kept control. Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? This confession of Lord, Lord is one of trust. It's one of surrender, acknowledging that God is God and we are not. Even in our best and most heartfelt efforts, we still fail. We find ourselves back in this place of self-reliance, back in a place seeking control, seeking the things of God and not God himself. You know, Jesus knows the conditions of the human heart. He knows. He's just naming it for us. 
This ability to say one thing and do another is of no surprise to him. When discussing this declaration, Lord, Lord, Tim Keller explains that the person who surrenders his will is not necessarily more moral or more self-controlled or has a, having a greater character. He says that this person is teachable, that this authentic submission is reflected by how this person takes and accepts criticism. He says these types of people are the chief repenters the quickest to say they're wrong. They're willing to submit any part of their life, whether God is showing them through a person, through scripture, um, through a sermon. If they're failing to do what Jesus says, they want to know and amend their life. In the parable of the two builders, what made the second builder make such an unwise choice? Well, he wanted to avoid hard labor. He wanted to avoid hard work. You see, the sand was too attractive. It took much less trouble to put his house on sand than digging into a rock. To accept criticism and remain open to hearing that you're acting in a way that's not pleasing to God is challenging and feels incredibly vulnerable. It may be easier at times to take our own way versus Jesus's way, but we see the end is ruin. This builder wasn't just avoiding hard work, he was short-sighted. He never troubled to think about what this chosen building site would look like in the future. In our decisions, we have a short, we can take a short view or a long view. And this is an invitation to take a long view to see our lives in the light of eternity. But the first builder is like the person who comes, who hears, who acts. There is an invitation to come to Jesus, to hear him, to internalize his messages, to store them up as treasure so that the condition of our hearts generate the very practices that he's been outlining in the Sermon on the Plain, you know, such as how we relate to people, how we use our money, how we love, how we care for others how we care for the people that we really don't like. I mentioned earlier that I struggle with this passage for quite some time. Well, there's two reasons. Um, well, there's more than that, but I'll tell you about two today. Um, I often call out Lord, Lord, and do not do as Jesus tells me to do. And upon reflecting on that truth, I start to drift toward behavior management, which is really image management and fail to address the condition of my heart. I care more about what other people think of me than what God thinks of me. And I was looking around in this passage, looking for the grace. I mean, the lordship piece felt really clear. And I was just struggling to see where is the grace? Where is the Jesus that I know in these words? And then one day it hit me. It was like probably the Holy Spirit, right? It was just this idea. The very presence of Jesus in this story is the grace. You see, Jesus knew who he was talking to. He knew what was going to happen with the disciples. He knew 
the multitude of people, he knew that even those that would spend the most amount of time with him would struggle to understand his teaching, that they would be fearful, that they would fail him, that they would care about more what other people thought versus what he thought. He knew that they would even betray him. And yet there he is sticking it out with the disciples, with the multitude, knowing there's going to be a struggle. Remember, Jesus is like the shepherd who leaves the 99 and searches for that one lost sheep. <clears throat> he is full of grace and mercy. The grace is this invitation to call him Lord, Lord. We have a personal God who is inviting us into a knowing relationship with him. You see, Jesus knows what kind of tree you are. He knows the condition of your heart. There are no surprises here. I've heard it say, said, a mentor of mine says, you know, Sam, clumsy's as good as it gets on this side of heaven. That feels really freeing to me. So we try to implement Jesus' teachings. We pay attention to our actions. We pay attention to what we're communicating with others when we're in relationship. We pay attention to these things as a reflection, to, to reflect and understand what is the condition of my heart, and we repent. And we trust that God will complete the good work that he started in us. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, thank you that you are personal and you do invite us into a knowing relationship with you. We pray for your grace and your mercy on us because we know how easy it is to declare, Lord, Lord, and do not do what you say to do. Show us the areas of our lives that need to be brought into alignment with your teaching while reminding us of your great, deep affection for each one of us. Thank you, Jesus, that you stuck it out with the disciples, the multitude, and you stick it out with us. Help us to build a foundation rooted in your truth and teaching. Amen.